afternoon and welcome to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Over the next hour, you'll learn how to live from your true self through all of life's twists and turns. And you'll be challenged to lean into the mysteries of life to find your own deepest wisdom. Now, here's your host, Andrea Matthews. Good afternoon and welcome to the Authentic Living Show. You know, in this crazy, painful, struggling, dark, and even sometimes evil world, we find it hard, if not impossible, to believe that we might inhabit heaven right here on planet Earth. And yet, many of the world's religions put forth the ideal of inhabiting heaven right here, right now, on planet Earth. But what does that mean? Does it mean that we'll live in a constant state of bliss where nothing of this world troubles us? Does it mean that we live cloistered away from the world in a rarefied atmosphere of holiness? If we could, if we really could inhabit heaven now in this 3D reality, what would that look like? You want to stay here for this important topic. So let's talk about this crazy, painful, struggling, dark, and sometimes even evil world. We, we live in a world that's confounding. It's difficult for the best of us to face the troubles and difficulties and darknesses and choices and um, dark intentions and mistakes and all of that that we make in this world, the suffering, if we look at it, could be seen as unbearable. And so we imagine that that is, you know, how can we have heaven on this planet where there's just so much suffering? Over this past year or two, we lost 600,000 lives in America alone to COVID. All of those families are suffering. All of those families are grieving the loss of their loved ones. So what does that mean in terms of how we will manage to finally escape somehow this world and live in a heaven? Well, from the Western tradition, <coughs> excuse me, I'm so sorry. Uh, from the Western tradition, the, the heaven is a place we go to only after we die. We can't live there now on planet Earth. We can't, we can't do that. But we do have to, you know, we do have to live an upright life in order to to be able to get there finally when we die. And or there's a possibility of a narrow road we could take, which would uh, allow us uh, to God's mercy, which would mean that we would be forgiven for our sins. But even after that, we'd still be accountable for following the law and the rules. So um, then maybe if, we're, if we can do that just right, we arrive at heaven. There are some who are very fundamentalistic in this Western tradition who say that only after, uh, uh, that only, excuse me, only 144,000 literal, 144,000 people literally will be allowed into heaven in the end when the judgment day comes. Um, you know, I, I look at that and I go, gosh, I feel sorry for God because he created all these billions and billions and billions of people and only 144,000 of them go to heaven. That sounds like a failed God to me. His mission was to create a world. What happened? You know, what happened? Uh, and all of those other people are suffering in hell. And so that, that theology just makes no sense to me. So I have to just go ahead and own that right up front so you'll know that that theology makes no sense. But it makes no sense in part because I've studied the root language of that very book. 
And I have spent considerable time over the past 20, 25 years in that study. And I uh, have learned quite a bit about all the meanings of words that were not chosen by the translators they, that, that could have been chosen. So if you look up a Hebrew word or a Greek word in, on, in the uh, um, concordances, there, there's various concordances out there. Uh, Strong's is one of the most popular. Uh, also Young is, is another popular one. So you look up the words in those concordances, and sometimes you can find root words. But sometimes just the very basic word itself has several different possible meanings. The translators chose one of those meanings, and they didn't choose the other meanings. And some of those meanings are very different from the ones they chose. But the ones they chose seem to match the political and, 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 and religious um, rules, if you will, of the time. So back when uh, the Council of Nicaea happened in 325 A.D., they made a decision about who Jesus was. Was he the only son of God who could, who, and there was nobody else like him, and he's made up of the same substance as God, as God and then there's nobody else like him? Or is he is he, did he come here to show us all how we could all be sons of God? And so there were some people on one side and some people on the other side, and the Council of Nicaea made the decision that he was the only son of God. He didn't come here to show us all how we could all be sons of God, even though his very words belie that idea that he's the only begotten son of God. In his words, he told us that uh, we, we would do greater things than he did because he was going to heaven. Now, if we could do greater things than he did, how is it that he's the only son of God? So, you know, there's all kinds of questions called into play if you really look at the text of the Bible and ask important questions. Furthermore, uh, the, the language that's used for the only Son of God uh, don't really mean the only Son of God. So, uh, you know, we, we have to really look at the language that's used and look at the discovered unused words that, that were not selected by the translators because it didn't match their their understanding of God or of Jesus. So the church made some rulings. And in the Council of Nicaea, it was, it was a, a, a secular leader who ran that group. And he did it because he wanted to unite his entire empire under one religion. So he decided, along with them, he led the group, and he decided along with them what, you know, what the what was the truth and the falseness about Jesus. And ever after that, that was the way Jesus had to be seen. And if you didn't see him that way, you were committing heresy. And heretics were killed. So the church ran the, both the, the religious order of the day and also the civil order of the day. So, you know, it had total authority. And so who was going to go up against the church? In fact, the streets ran with blood in several of the century, in a couple of the centuries, where uh, because heretics were just slaughtered in a genocide because they believed in a certain way of looking at God and Jesus that the church didn't agree to. So the church held final authority, and the church was the one that decided on the translations of the Bible 
And yet, if you look at the root language, what you find is that many of the meanings that match, actually match other religions, like Hinduism and Buddhism, those were left out of the text. They were not included. So what I did was I wrote a book called Inhabiting Heaven Now, and uh, the subtitle is The Answer to Every Moral Dilemma Ever Posed, because it's based in the idea that Morality is not the same as spirituality, and that we, we, when we look at uh, morality, we're looking at a bunch of rules and, and oftentimes ways of measuring our worth as human beings, whereas when we look at grace, when we look at the divine uh, intention toward us, we find something entirely different, and we find it even in the very book that people are using to tell us that we are not worthy because we're not following the rules of God. So authoritarian Christians believe in an authoritarian God, and that is a God who demands the righteousness by uh, telling us that our, you know, we have to follow certain rules, and there's a lot of rigid rules uh, that are listed in the earlier, earlier texts of the Bible, in the Old Testament, and when Jesus came along, he didn't follow those rules. For example, they said that you should uh, keep the Sabbath holy and do no work on the Sabbath. And so the, the people had made all these different rules about what you could and you couldn't do on the Sabbath. One of those where you couldn't heal somebody else. But Jesus did it several times. He healed several people on, on the Sabbath, one time in the tabernacle itself. Um, and the people that were watching, the Pharisees that were watching, got mad at him for doing that and told him he shouldn't be doing it. And he just basically said, when is, uh, he didn't say it in these words, but basically, when is there a better time to heal somebody? So, he didn't follow the rules. And, you know, he might have followed some of them, but not all of them. There There were rules about, you know, what he should do about washing, you know, before he sat down for a meal to cleanse his body. There were rules about how whether or not he should be touched by a woman. There were all kinds of these rules he did not obey. And so uh, rules is one of the things Jesus, the very concept of rules is one of the things that Jesus called into question just by his very behavior. And so then he said, the only law, the whole law and the prophets is in the idea that we would love God with all of our hearts and all of our minds and all of our souls. And that we would love our neighbors as ourselves. That was the law. Period. End of subject. So, if that's really true, then all these other legalistic uh, and demanding authoritarian leaders who tell us that we should be following the law, the law, the law, the law, the law, and morality, 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 are lying. They're not telling us the truth because that's not the whole law. The whole law is love. And can we love while we're judging someone else? Can we love while say, saying that the LGBTQ plus population is evil and they should all go to hell? Is that love? Is it love uh, to storm the Capitol with signs that have Bible verses on them? Is that love? So a lot might be called into question today about what is true and what's false about the, uh, about religion in particular, in particular the Western religion. 
So, and the other thing is, I just have a general concept that I'll share with you, and that is that um, I believe that the more rigid a religion is, the more fear there is behind that rigidity. So, I believe that the people that are really, really rigid and compulsive about their religion are people who are uh, scared. They're scared. They're scared of life. They're scared of death. They're scared of money. They're scared of time. They're scared of all the limitations of life. They're scared of all that. And I'm scared too, you know? We all get scared. But but, but uh, one way to compensate for that fear is to develop a very fundamentalistic and rigid religion that says, I'm okay now because I'm doing all these things right. I can tick all these boxes and I'm okay. So, uh, so having said all that, what I want to say is this Western religion has formulated and put forth the idea and, has, and that idea has now become popular worldwide that heaven is a place we go to after we die and we can only get there based on certain things that we do or don't do based on the religion, whichever the religion is. We can either say, say a certain prayer and that'll get us to heaven or we can ob- obey the law and that'll get us to heaven or we can be good people and that'll get us to heaven, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, but it's always a place we go to after we die. What we're about to learn is that that is not what heaven is at all. That doesn't mean there's not a wonderful place we go to after we die. But the kingdom of heaven, as Jesus described it in the Gospels, does not mean what we think it means. For example, in Matthew, what is it, 17, no, excuse me, Luke 17, 20 through 21, he says, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And if you look at the word midst, midst there, the single word for the phrase in your midst is entos, which means within, inside, or in your soul. So where is the kingdom of heaven? It's inside of you. It's not up there in, up, up there in the sky somewhere. It's inside of you. It's in you. It's in your soul. So once and for all, let's suspend the notion that heaven is the external place to which we go after we die or here And without the use of parable, Jesus clearly tells us where we can find heaven. It's inside of us. So that's the first thing we need to look at. Then Jesus gave us several, several parables about the kingdom of heaven that have been used and misused over the centuries to inform us about what's true and what's false, about whether or not we're going to go to heaven in this eternal place of bliss and happiness ever after, after we die. So here's uh, another uh, Bible verse from Bible verse says from Matthew 13, 24 through 30. The kingdom of heaven can be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Now, there's the first step. It's sowing. Uh, while, but while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares also among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprang up and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. And the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir... Did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go up and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you're gathering up the tares, you may root up the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, 
First, gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, what tradition has taught us is that what that Bible verse is telling us, what those Bible verses are telling us is that in the end time, there's going to be a great divide between the good people and the bad people, and the bad people are going to hell and the good people are going to heaven. But that's not what it says at all. What actually we see there, and it's very important that we notice this, is a process. And Jesus is describing what goes on in this kingdom of heaven. He says it can be compared to, so it's a pro, it, can be, it can be compared to a man who sowed good seed. But while people were sleeping, while we we're unconscious, while we're not paying attention, this uh, part of our, our psyche goes in there and plants tears and plants negative thoughts and plants other things in our brains. So that's a process. And then they, the men discover it. That's another process. The, the, you go and discover that, oh, my gosh, I've got these negative thoughts, these, these difficult, um, um, you know, uh, doors that I have to walk through to get to the power that is within me. Got all that going on. And then it's discovered by the men. And then they ask a question. Well, should we tear it up? And he says, no, don't tear it up because you don't want to pull up the good wheat, the good wheat as well. So let's just wait. And then we're going to take the, the, the te- wheat and use it. And we're going to take the tares and transform it. And the reason I know it's going to be transformed is because the word for furnace there, you know, the good uh, that gather the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up. And the word that's actually used there is furnace. And that word is kaminos. And it's a word that has to do with transforming. So uh, it's a place where you take bread and bake it into actual bread. You take the, uh, the, the you know, not the actual bread, but the, the bread that's going to become bread and you put it in the oven and you um, and you change it into bread. It's a place for smelting, for burning earthenware, and for baking bread. So you, 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 all these things are about transformation. Once it was just dough, and now it's bread. Once it was just a, a wet piece of clay, and now it's a pot. Uh, you know, smelting means breaking something down into a, a, a liquid. So... When what we're doing there is transforming, it is not ending anything. It is not uh, tearing up anything. It's not destroying anything. It's not eternally punishing anything. It is transforming something. So this is a place of transformation. And it happens within the kingdom of heaven. So what we have here is one story, and we're going to hear some more stories in a minute, but one story that tells us that the kingdom of heaven is not a place we go to after we die. But it's a process, a process of discovery, a process of growth, a process in which we, we transform, a process in which we take what is the good wheat, so to speak, and make it into something else, make food out of it, etc. Uh, in, in other words, it's a place inside of us, we've already discovered this is inside of us, it's a place of discovery, a process of uncovering, a process of coming to know, a process of uh, when we're asleep, uh, uh, things grow in there that maybe shouldn't grow when we're not paying attention, and we need to take those things and transform them. So Paul talks about being transformed in our minds. 
And we're going to talk some more about that right after the break. Stay tuned for more. your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's time to serve, learn, change the world. Tune in each week for the power of young people to change the world. Hosted by NYLC's CEO, Amy Muirs. The program is a forum for both young people and the adults who love and support them. We make connections with others through stories of change, partnership, and new perspectives of issues facing the world today. Be sure to join us every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time or anytime on demand on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Do you have executive function challenges? Actually, these are a lot more common than you would think. These challenges include time management issues, organization, planning, focusing, memory, and problem solving. If this sounds like you, you'll want to check out Focus on Success. With Fazia Costi, you'll hear from professionals that offer advice based on their expertise and provide solutions to improve your life. Focus on Success can be heard Wednesdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern, on Voice America Empowerment. Live up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now toll-free, 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthews.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. we're back talking today about the possibility of inhabiting heaven now and I should let you know that there's a whole book called inhabiting heaven now that I wrote the subtitle is the answer to every moral dilemma ever posed and it goes into depth about these words that uh, have been translated a certain way and interpreted a certain way but we come to find out that actually they don't really mean what we've been taught they meant for example in the story we just read about the weed and the tares Jesus goes back later and talks to, the, to the, the disciples and interprets his own parable for them. And he says, the enemy who sowed the tares is the devil. Now, who's the devil? I want to stop a minute here and say, <clears throat> when I did a, a study of the word devil and Satan in the Bible, uh, it turns out to be a place of unconsciousness, a place where we, are, we pour out the soul without regard to where it falls. That's the actual language that's used. We pour out something without regard to where it falls. And what we pour out is our awareness of who we are as, as people who are totally connected and one with the divine. We have not lost that oneness. We have not lost that oneness. It is inside of us. It is the kingdom of heaven that lives inside of us. But this, this idea, this unconsciousness comes along and says, no, you're not really you're not really connected to God. You're not really one with God. You're separate and you're therefore worthless. You're not, you don't have worth. You don't have meaning. You don't have power. You don't have any of those things. And you can't get them because they belong to God and you're too far away from God to get them. 
Those are the thoughts that get planted. Those are the tears that get planted. Duality is the thought that gets planted that, that, that tells us that we are not who we are. So we pour out the soul. We pour out our understanding of ourselves. We pour, pour out the kingdom of God within us, the kingdom of heaven within us, and we have no regard for where it falls. We just pour it out unwittingly, like you take a, uh, some dirty water and throw it out the door. That's what we do. We pour that out. And that's what the, this symbol of the devil means. It does not mean there's a real literal um, superhuman entity that tempts us and whispers in our ear and tells us to be bad people and, and trips us up and thwarts us and, and is the enemy of God and fights with the angels against God. That is not what that means. When you look at the root language, you see a whole other truth. So, uh, so the enemy that uh, sowed these tares is that, is that part of us that throws out our soul without awareness of where it falls. And the, the harvest at the end of the age and the reapers are angels. And angels are messages from the kingdom of heaven within us. That We'll find that out too. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. Now, that's what people have interpreted that to mean because it's translated that way it's also interpreted to say that there's going to come a time in the future when we will all be judged. And when we get judged, we're, we're all, some of us are going to go to heaven and some of us are going to go to hell. Most of us are going to go to hell, in fact, and very few of us are going to go to heaven. That's not what it means. What it means is the, uh, actually the, the, the phrase end of the age is very significant because the end is santilia, which means consummation. Very important word, and it is rooted in that word uh, in the and a word that Jesus used on the Sermon on the Mount when he said that uh, we must be perfect, uh, like God is perfect. That word is telio. That word got translated as perfect, but it doesn't mean perfect. It means complete, fulfill, or finish. In other words, we're supposed to finish what we're doing here, complete our journey here, uh, and that's that's what we're supposed to do. And the word age is aeon, which means forever, unbroken, age, eternity, universe, age, and it's rooted in I, which means per- perpetuity, incessantly, invariably, at any and every time. So what does that mean about when Jesus says at the end of the age this is going to happen? What he means is there's a constant unending, incessant process of consummation happening within us all the time. It doesn't mean that it's going to happen in some future generation. That is not what that means. But that's how it's been translated because nobody looked at the root language. And I'm looking at the root language. And it means something very, very different than what we got taught. So so what Jesus is saying there is the kingdom of heaven is a long, incessant, perpetual, invariable, all the time process of waking up, of consummation, where we are being consumed by the holy fire that is the love that is the divine. In uh, 1 John, I believe it is, in the later text of the Bible, it says, God is love. And that's what we're being consumed by. We're being consumed by love. For that is the nature of the divine. It is the, the power, the molecular structure, the, uh, the in, uh, endless 
possibilities of love. That's what we're being consumed by every day, all the time. And that is, that defines the kingdom of heaven. That's what it's all about. So, okay, here's another one. It's from Matthew 13, 31 through 32. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all the other seeds. But when it's full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. So we have a part. Remember, the kingdom of heaven is within us. Can't be anywhere else. It's it's within us. So And it's like a mustard seed. It's tiny, tiny, tiny. We don't see it. It's so small. We've tossed out our awareness of it without regard to where it falls. We, we believe in duality. We don't see it. But it is growing inside of us, and eventually it will become bigger than everything else inside of us. And all the birds of the air, all the transcendent thoughts are going to come nest in its branches. That is what the kingdom of heaven really is. Okay? So then we have another one, Matthew 13, 33. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three packs of meal until it was all leavened. That's a very short little story, but it's packed full of meaning. The first one is, why did Jesus talk about uh, leaven? Leaven was forbidden to the Jewish people he was talking to. Why did he talk about leaven? So what he's saying there is that even the things that we think are forbidden are part of the kingdom of heaven, which is, again, within us. So uh, so it tells of the kingdom of heaven's 11 bread, which even when divided, I don't know why it's three packs. I, I, I don't get that. That's some kind of measurement that I, don't, I can't understand the metaphor behind that. So I'm not even going to go there. But somehow it's divided. And it's going to grow until all of it is leavened. Um, so Jesus meant to say here that we can ex- what we can expect to be true will not necessarily end up being true. We don't expect leaven to be a story given to the Jewish population. We, the Jewish people probably didn't expect that. But that's what he said. And so it, what we anticipate the kingdom of heaven being might be very different from what it actually is. Could it be possible here that even the things that are sins are also working toward our transformation to get us into heaven? So, you know, these are the things that that, uh, Jesus talked about that are meaningful to us. Uh, He tells us also that he speaks in parables because while seeing they do not see, while hearing they do not hear. In the case of the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says you will keep on hearing will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of the people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return. And I would heal them. So, you know, that's, that's basically the reason why he spoke in parables is because he wanted the people to look beyond what the seeming ideas. And that's the very thing that's been forbidden to us by the people who insist that the Bible is the inerrant word of God and the only authority, and that that authority has already been translated and already been interpreted, and there is no other possible way of looking at it than the way it's been translated and interpreted. But as we can see, the root language does not translate or interpret it that way. 
So it's important to understand that when we talk about the kingdom of heaven, we're not talking about a place where we can go after we die. Now, that does not mean that there's not a wonderful place we go to after we die. Okay? I believe there is. And if you believe there is also, then more have enjoy that. Because those of us who've had near-death experiences have, uh, have understood a heaven, a place that is uh, a consciousness, I won't even say a place, a consciousness that is light and love fully and completely and wisdom and knowledge. And uh, so uh, those are the things we get from when we go to the kingdom of heaven within us. And it's also the, the thing we get when we finally do shed this mortal coil and move on to, uh, to that internal place in heaven. I believe what happens is that when we die, uh, we ha- the, the thing that is the small place inside of us becomes the only thing there is. And that is our soul. It is the very essence of who we are as divine beings who are totally one with the divine. But this concept that we are one with the divine is completely foreign to the Western tradition. It's totally acceptable to Eastern tradition, but it's not so acceptable to Western tradition. Western tradition, I've even read articles where they say that we should not meditate because meditating uh, means that we believe in Eastern religion where that means that we're, we are divine beings who have just forgotten who we are, but we really need to focus on our sins and the fact that we need forgiveness for our sins, and if we don't focus on that, then there's doom for us on the other end. So we need to be focused on that. And some of the, some of the, um, some of the uh, more progressive and more uh, um, less fundamentalist groups, Christian groups, are, are, are saying that... Um, Certainly meditation is one of the ways we access the divine, and it's okay to do that. So I don't want to say that this is something that all Christians are doing. But there is a subset of Christians that I would call a cult that uh, is actually teaching that, um, that uh, the meditation is bad. It's evil, and it will get us, uh, it'll, it'll only take us away from Christianity and not toward it. But there's others of the Christian faith who are meditating and feeling that this is drawing them closer and closer to the divine. Um, and, but what they're getting in touch with when they do that is that internal kingdom of heaven. It's called the kingdom of heaven in the vernacular that was translated into the text. But it's really a place that is inside of us. And Jesus clearly said, don't look for it over there or up there. Look for it in here because that's where it is. And uh, so it's important for us to understand that, yes, it is possible for us to live in that kingdom, abide in our own souls, even as we're living here on planet Earth. Yes, that is possible for us to do. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean that we're never going to have any pain or struggles? No, because what we find when we look at the text of of the Bible is also true that hell is not a place we go to after we die. It is not a place of eternal suffering. But there is some suffering there. Gnashing of teeth, as, as Jesus would have called it. But what, what he re- referred to when he, when he talked about that was, again, a place of transformation. And when we look at the root language, that's what we see about hell. That it's a place of transformation. It's a place where people are transformed, you know, in, back into... Uh, who they really are, closer and closer to their own souls. 
so um, so w- when we talk about uh, hell, what we come to understand is that hell is in the employ of heaven. Hev- the kingdom of heaven uses the struggles and the dark times and the dualistic thoughts and the dualistic patterns that we have in our lives. It uses that to help us evolve. Now, here's another thing. That evolution doesn't just play, take place in one lifetime. I know, I know. I just stepped on lots of toes by saying that. But it doesn't just occur in one lifetime. Jesus said that. Jesus said that, that John the Baptist was Elijah. Come again. Jesus said that. Jesus responded to his disciples. who They saw this blind man on the street, and the disciples said to him, you know, uh, why is he blind? Is it because of his sin? He was blind from birth, by the way. And uh, they said, well, why is he blind from birth? Is it because of his sin? Or did his parents sin and create this blindness? And Jesus said it was neither. But it was so that the glory of God could be seen in him. And a lot of people have translated that to mean, oh, well, Jesus was about to heal him. So therefore, Jesus is saying the glory of God was going to be seen in him because Jesus was going to heal him. Jesus did, in fact, heal him. But here's the deal. The glory of God was seen in the man, not in Jesus' act. And the idea that Jesus was promoting his own actions flies in the face of everything else he ever did, where he kept telling people, don't tell anybody that this has happened. Go go home, sin no more, and don't tell anybody this has happened. So, um, you know, what what Jesus was saying there was that that his blindness was a part of his own evolution. And he was actually declaring at that moment that there's such a thing as a reincarnation because his evolution had to have begun before he was born if he was blind from birth. Okay? And we can look more at the root language of that, and I do, in the book Inhabiting Heaven Now. But uh, uh, what I'm saying there is that the, 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 the truth of our nature does not happen in a single lifetime. We are evolving lifetime after lifetime after lifetime after lifetime to become more of our own souls. We're, we're evolving to be transformed into our own souls. And uh, so when we look at the, the reality of our own souls, which is the kingdom of heaven, which is within us, that lives in, in, inside of us, when we look at that, what we begin to see is that um, it, our lives are slowly over time transforming as we become more and more aware people say we we get wiser as we get older well there's a truth to that we get wiser because we've had life experiences that that require us to get smarter to get more aware of the truth of our being and over lifetimes we become more evolved and that's exactly the thing that the eastern religions say that over many lifetimes we jump off the wheel of samsara and we become karma free and we live lives of bodhisattvas. Uh, I think the Buddhists call it bodhisattvas, but it's the same idea. And and that means that we become teachers for the world, but we also become people who are fully aware of what I would call the own, our own internal kingdom of heaven within. We become, we begin to live in the internal kingdom of heaven right here on planet Earth. And we give that gift to other people as well. So, and Jesus was declaring that in a couple of different ways with regard to his talk about reincarnation. So, 
that's important for us to understand as we as we look at this evolution that is the process that is the kingdom of heaven within us. Uh, and we're going to talk just a little bit more about that right after the break. So stay tuned for more right after this. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Unravel the mysteries of metaphysics every week on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Join host Barb Crowley as she and her insightful guest share what's been learned behind the veil, going just beyond our five senses. Now you can see things with an entirely different point of view. Tune in for Metaphysics, A View Through the Veil, broadcasting live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Use it to explore your advantage and deeper understanding. Are you disenchanted by the ideas you were told when you were younger? We're always told about the success stories, but not about the climb to get there. With nearly every success, there is a hidden story filled with challenges. Listen to From the Ashes with Mark Azalay. You'll hear about these challenges and what our guests had to go through to become the successful people they are today. Listen live every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Change your world. Change your life. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now toll-free, 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthews.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. And we're back talking today about inhabiting heaven now, how we go about doing that, and whether or not it's even possible to do that. So I want, I want to talk about one more passage that uh, authenticates what I was saying in the, uh, just before the break uh, about how we evolve over time and we, we have to struggle with our own tears, our own uh, duality, our own duality thinking, the, what I call the duality trance state in which we believe we're separate from the divine and unworthy of connection to the divine. And because we believe that, we act out in all kinds of desperate ways to, to, to steal and to rob and to rape and to plunder and to do all kinds of, have wars and all that stuff because we believe in lack. We believe that we're not going to be taken care of. Um, and, you know, one of the things that happened in the, in the uh, journey across the desert with the Israelites was they, uh, been, uh, they kept complaining to Moses that they, weren't, they weren't, didn't have any food. And they didn't have any water. And that is in spite of the fact that they had been provided quail and manna and water all along the way of their journey. For 40 years, they'd been provided for it. God provided, dropped manna out of heaven, literally. Now, heaven, again, is the place within us, unless you're talking about the sky. And it either came from the sky or they just some manifested this bread, this manna. So uh, either way, uh, they had enough to eat. But they kept complaining about the fact that they didn't have enough, to, or the thought that the idea that they didn't have enough to eat. And it reminded me of a teenage boy who comes home from 
school or work or whatever and goes into the refrigerator and looks in the refrigerator and slams the door and goes to the pantry and looks in the pantry and slams the door and says, there's nothing to eat around here. And his mother comes and looks in the pantry and goes, look, there's all this food. And she goes to the refrigerator and says, look, there's all this food. And he goes, but I hate that stuff. And that's exactly what the Israelites said. When Moses said, yeah, but you have all this food, they said, yeah, but we hate that stuff. Uh, so, uh, so basically they were acting like adolescents. And uh, so, so they were poisoning their own mindset with this idea that they weren't being provided for even though they were. And so some snakes came into the camp and poisoned several of them so they were about to die. So they manifested the poison in their external worlds as well. And so then Moses was told by God to hold a bronze serpent up on a staff and the Israelites were to look at it. That is all. They were not to pray. They were not to, uh, to ask Jesus Christ to be their personal Lord and Savior. They were not to do any of that except look at that bronze serpent on the staff. They looked at the bronze serpent and they were healed. So what does that mean? It means the poison that kills us also changes us, transforms us, helps us to, to be healed. And that's exactly the story of our lives with regard to the kingdom of heaven. That what, what is difficult for us, what is hard for us, the tears in our lives, the, the suffering that we go through, the illnesses, the money problems, all of those things are maybe not created by the divine for sure, but created by our own duality thinking and our, our manifesting it, that creation is also a part of our journey toward evolution. So in the process of discovery, the process of recovery, the process of, of, of transformation that is occurring within us is always endlessly, incessantly going on and we are being consumed by the love of the divine, which is the divine, all the time through this process that is the kingdom of heaven within us. And so there's another story here about uh, found in Matthew 18, 23 through 35, if you want to go look it up. And it's about, it says, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. So the kingdom of heaven within us is settling accounts with, with, the, with the slaves within us, the, the people that are enslaved to duality. And so... He goes to one of the slaves and he and he asks him to pay him back. And the slave says, I can't pay you back. Please have mercy on me. I'm so sorry. Please have mercy on me. And the king says, okay, I'm going to have mercy on you. I'm going to forgive your debt. And the slave goes right out there outside the door. And he meets one of the people who owes him money. And he says, give me that money uh, and I will and pay, you back, pay me back what you owe me right away. And, and the slave fell on the ground and begged him please delay your anger and I will repay you but the the slave that had been forgiven he said no I'm not no I'm I'm going to throw you into prison and he did he threw him into prison so the king found out about it and he the slave was called back to him and he said I forgave you why couldn't you forgive your 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 friend your, the slave that owed you money um so I had compassion on you. Where was your compassion is basically what he's saying. And he was angry and he handed him over to the torturers in the prison until he paid back everything he owed. Now, what is that saying? It's saying, according to Western tradition, it's saying he handed him over to hell where he would be, where he would be uh, you know, forever punished. But that's not what it says. It says until he paid back his debt. 
So there is a struggle. There is a, and it's not a punishment really, it's more of a, of, of a gnashing of teeth uh, that, that when we look at the root language that tells us that, you know, basically what that's saying is we struggle. But the struggle transforms us so that we have finished uh, the work we're supposed to do with that. And that's kind of a little bit like karma from the Eastern religions where we, we have to go ahead and work on the stuff that needs work so that we can evolve to the next place. And then the definition of karma according to Western uh, retranslation of karma has to do with punishment. You're getting bad karma because you did bad stuff in a previous life. You did good karma because you did good stuff in a previous life. That's not what karma really means. What karma is really all about is it's about uh, uh, that evolution that's taking place within us where we can finally get off the wheel of samsara and become uh, wise and loving pe- the wise and loving people that are connected to the divine and understand the divine is living within us. And um, so they operate as the divine initiates within them, like Jesus did. Jesus said, I can do nothing of my own initiative. And what he meant was the, the divine within him was initiating all of his activities. And that's what happens when we jump off the wheel of Sansara, according to Eastern religion. So, so what, what, this, what karma really is, is, is it, it allows us a time of suffering that enables us to grow and to become more aware of who we are as divine beings and more uh, fluidly connected to the divine and uh, more fluidly connected to love and our own love natures. And um, so that's, that's basically what karma really is. It is an evolutionary process, just like the kingdom of heaven within us. It includes an evolutionary process. That's not the sum total of it, but it does include that evolutionary process that means that we are... Uh, being consumed by divine love. We are being consumed all the time. Incessantly. I love that word, incessantly. It just is so demanding. It says, you will be evolved. And that's another thing. You know, I said earlier that uh, that many of the fundamentalist uh, uh, Western people of Western tradition will uh, believe in a failed God that only a very small fraction of the human race is going to go to heaven after we die. And that's, you know, that's smacks of a failed God who created a planet full of billions and billions and billions and billions of people only to let only a small fraction of those people live with him eternally. And the rest of them are going to this place of eternal suffering. That's just, that's a failed God. I'm sorry, that God doesn't, he, he's failed. His creation has failed him. He, he, didn't succeed. It, it's sorry. It's failure. So, um, but that's not what Isaiah says. In Isaiah fifty-five eleven, it says, "Like the rain falls down to the earth and and produces uh, fruit and and flowers and all kinds of things, so will my word be which comes out of my mouth. My word will not return to me empty." but will accomplish that for which I have sent it. And so what that says is God does not fail. Everything that he sent out there is going to come right back to him, fulfilled, complete, just like that word teleo that we talked about a little while ago where, where it has been translated as perfect. doesn't mean perfect at all. It means complete, 
finished, done. His word will be done. And so what that means is my soul will not return to the divine empty because I am a creation of the divine. I will finish doing what I came here to do. And I believe that means that in every single lifetime that I have as a soul, I will accomplish whatever I set out to accomplish in that particular life. Whatever my soul wants to accomplish in that life, I will absolutely 100% accomplish. No, I can't fail. No way. Not going to happen. May go through some struggles. May have a hard time. But even those are going to help me to become what I'm I'm becoming as uh, an aware, fully evolved person. And so there's no way to fail. But in the fundamentalist Western motif, that's all we do is fail. We fail and fail and fail and fail. And I've talked to people who say, I, I sin a hundred times a day. I'm like, how are you doing that? How, how are you doing that? Well, you know, I might have a little bad thought. Or I might have, you know, I might have told a little white lie. Or I might have... And I'm just, you know, what that means is that there's constantly a calculation of sinfulness, of unworthiness. And people plead to this God as, I'm unworthy, I'm unworthy. And yet, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say you're unworthy. The Bible says you're made a little lower than the angels. The Bible says you are, and, and, and if you look at the word angels there, it's actually God. You're a little lower than God. You're not unworthy. You're not worthless. You're not a sinful person that I would, you know, that I don't want anything to do with. You're everything to me. You're just, you're, you're my creation. And you will not return to me empty. It is not possible. I love that verse. It's my favorite verse in the whole Bible. Because it tells me all the time that I am not going to fail. Now, does that mean I haven't ever done anything that I regret? No. I certainly have things done things that I regret. Some of them I regret more than others. But what that does mean is each one of those things that I did that I regret has helped to transform me into the person that I have become today. Each one of those things is actually, has actually blessed me in some kind of way where I have become a better, a, a, not a better person, but a more whole person. And, and I believe that it has that same impact. If I harm someone else with my deeds then that is also a facilitating their evolution as well. Now, that's not to say that I give myself license to go around harming people. I don't mean that at all. What I do mean is that if I do that, there's still something that's going to come from that. There's another verse in the, in the New Testament, and I can't remember exactly where it is, but it says, all things work for the good for those who are called by, by Jesus Christ or something like that. It's all things work for the good. That means even our darkest deeds somehow work for the good. Even that. We cannot fail. The kingdom of heaven is within us. It is a process, an incessant process of evolution that is constantly happening in, in, in us to help us evolve. And we can go live there in our own souls anytime we choose. So that's what we have for today. And we'll be back again next week. Remember, your job, should you choose to accept it, is to give birth to yourself. Thanks again for listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. 
Join us again next Wednesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We'll talk again next week.